0: Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is, there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off
1: your order.
2: What's your uh, your current research about? What kind of questions do you looking to answer?
3: So I'm mostly interested in microplastics and ways that we quantify and monitor for microplastics, particularly in freshwater ecosystems. So I primarily study lakes and streams or creeks. Um, I'm also interested in how people perceive uh, waste and plastics issues um, and some of the misinformation that surrounds those issues.
0: Okay, uh- Specifically,
2: what are you trying to figure out about uh, waste and plastics? People's perception of it is uh, is incorrect, or what do you mean?
3: Um, so a little bit of everything. So I'm interested in how we kind of inform circular economy approaches with better data. So when it comes to like human behavior, like how what kind of waste do individuals generate, is kind of what I'm interested in with some of the surveys that we've. Um, one particular survey that we put forward. Um, With an environmentally oriented group, as well as when they were asked about different questions related to plastics and waste, for example, the existence of, you know, trash islands and these Pacific gyres, whether they believed that that was true, you know, um, how much they agreed with that statement, and then comparing those answers to what's available in the research and also what's available when people do popular searches on Google.
2: So are you looking at how what trash people generate themselves, or you're looking at their perception of what they think others generate?:
3: Um so both not what they think others generate, but what they personally generate. So this was looking at specifically a social media campaign called Futuristic February um, that used to be put on by a group called the Sustainable Duo on Instagram, and we did an after um, event survey of that population just to get a grasp of their environmental perception, so how they perceived the environment and how they interact or have that place in the environment as well as the waste that they generated and then how they perceive different plastic issues or waste issues.
2: Um so what are some of the interesting answers you got on you know, relation to the civic gyres, the garbage patches that are uh, you know what what kind of uh, data from the services was interesting?
3: So I think my probably most interesting finding for myself was that people were the most uncertain about questions that had to do with either biodegradable plastics or bioplastics. Um, And they were 100% in agreement, whether they were like slightly agreeing or fully agreeing with the uh, statement that microplastics are toxic, which was very interesting because that's still a highly um, uncertain field of research currently that people are still... um, trying to look into, especially when it comes to human toxicity. So I thought it was really interesting that, and kind of lends itself better to where do we put like educational efforts about certain materials, um, because clearly it's possibly lacking when it comes to people's perceptions of bioplastics and how they think of them and what they are supposed to do with them.
2: If we don't have data on microplastics, people assume that they're harmful, then what would be your approach?
3: Um, That's a good question. So I guess... It's not that you want people to think that they aren't harmful, but the data is still uncertain about it. So I think the approach would be that we need to probably communicate that uncertainty a little better, especially in popular media, because I think when it comes to headlines that get people to, you know, read an article, it might be more interesting to be very certain about something, Um, but it is more factual to kind of display the uncertainty behind what's going on with the current research and communicate that a bit better, I think, to scientists and non-scientists. So scientists within and outside the field, as well as non-scientists who are reading the article and just trying to be up-to-date about microplastics.
2: At this point, if toxicity is not known, then what can you say except that, you know, research is in progress, but we don't know.
3: Yeah, I think there's some things to be said, particularly with findings um, attributed to biota, um, but I think the human research side can only be kind of inferred from other studies on similar materials. And I think it's challenging. I'm not myself a toxicologist, so it's a little bit more difficult. I think I can't really speak to the impacts, but um, the majority of my research has been on uh, quantifying and detecting microplastics in the environment.
2: So let's let's talk about some of that. What um what sizes of microplastics are you able to get data on, what kind of instrumentation do you use? Can you get to the one micron or sub-micron level?
3: To study microplastics, to my knowledge. So um, we kind of had to develop a way with the equipment that we had available. Um, So I primarily do visual identification. um, So using a stereo microscope to visually identify uh, microplastics and then subsampling them to determine, is it a microplastic? Are we certain? And what kind of material is it possibly? Um, And so we can usually get down to 100 microns in size. That's kind of our cutoff for saying, like, are we more certain or uncertain that this is uh, a microplastic? And we use kind of a guide that we've developed to determine, you know, do we think it is a microplastic or not?
2: What would it take to get down to uh, one micron?
3: Um, That's a good question. I don't particularly know. I know that there's a lot of different methods to do that. Some of them are like filter scanning methods using um, Raman microscopy or Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy. Um, more time consuming efforts and looking at like the whole filter versus we're only get able to look at what we can visually see. Um, and there's also some other methods that people put forth that are more mass based instead of based on like count or number of particles
2: well are there like standard filters that you could run you know a liquid sample through and if it had a small enough pore size it would catch you know whatever debris in there then maybe you could do you know fcar or maybe gas chromatography or something liberate the, the um sorry the materials off the uh, the filter and then see what's in there would that be maybe a backwards or a, you know around the way method of getting to smaller sizes at 100 microns
3: i mean yes that is what people who can detect that low are doing um we do the same thing we use like a small filter pore size but we just don't have access um and just didn't have the time to do that but visual identification is still widely used in the field and it is like for what we were doing probably the way to go because we had a lot of organic material present in our samples so it would have been difficult to one, eliminate the organic material enough to be able to filter scan without having to move material on the filter, um, which is primarily what we had to do. Um, but I think there's there's still some efforts to go forward with um, how we're able to detect with so much organic material present in the sample.
2: Yeah, the reason I ask is... Uh... You know, I would think larger pieces, 100 microns plus, wouldn't get lodged. Let's let's say in uh, the gill of a fish, or in maybe smaller tissues, or maybe the intestines of a person. Um, I would think, and it's just based on breathing in, you know, air pollution type material. That the one micron size is like the sweet spot, if you call it that, for um, for causing real problems of biological systems and creatures. That's why I asked. If you could get down lower. I wonder what you'd see.
0: Magnesium is integral. For 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet, most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order.
3: Yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you, but, <laughs> but uh, we, we don't go that far down. Um, still, because of like, what we're able to detect and what we can see, there is still a lot of importance to the larger materials because a lot of these materials will end up becoming the smaller materials. uh, Just based on how pervasive, persistent microplastics and plastic materials are, they will become those smaller materials. And being able to characterize the diversity of those larger particles can go a long way, I think, into developing policies that can kind of target the sources of where those microplastics are coming from. And as they become smaller, it's much harder to determine where they likely have come from um, because their shape kind of changes into, you know, a microplastic sphere or microplastic bead might become something that looks much more like a fragment. And you can't really tell what the original material was other than the polymer type. But when you're at that larger size of saying, oh, that is a microplastic bead, you might be able to say, oh, that could have come from a personal care product, an abrasive, a cleaner, um, and there's more actionables that you could use that for. So that's why I think still still plenty of importance to looking at the larger materials as well.
2: What are some of the sources that you're sampling to get microplastics information?
3: Um, So I'm characterizing microplastics in two lakes in central New York, as well as one of the lakes, Onondaga Lakes, tributaries and Outlet. Um, So we're characterizing microplastics that are present in the surface waters, typically, um, as well as in the lake water. Uh, We haven't been able to characterize the, because one of the sources to our ecosystem is combined sewer overflows, as well as wastewater treatment plant effluent. Um, And due to COVID, there were some restrictions in whether we were able to get source direct materials, but we're primarily sampling within the ecosystems themselves rather than A particular
2: source. So what are you seeing when you sample? What's predominant fibers or spheroids or what do you see?
3: Um, So typically fragments and fibers have been the most prevalent microplastics that we've seen. And then depending on the location, those can kind of change. Um, But the most dominant material is usually polyethylene plastics.
2: Where does polyethylene come from primarily?
3: Um, It's used in so many things, um, especially because we characterized both low density and high density because they're very difficult to uh, separate spectra-wise with the FTIR. We kind of lumped those two categories together into just polyethylene, so that makes it a little bit more difficult to tell like where it would come from, but I think um, food packaging is pretty common. I think plastic bags as well, but that would also be more indicative of like a, a film morphology, which we didn't see as much of, but we did see some.
2: So can you now go back and sample directly from the wastewater treatment plant and other sources, kind of subtract them from the things that you're seeing in the lakes? And streams?
3: Um, that's not, I'm like finished with my field sampling, so I won't personally be doing that. Um, but I guess in theory, somebody could do that. Yeah.
2: Well, I guess then you'd know if the uh, wastewater treatment plant contributes most of the polyethylene or if it's some other source that contributes it, it just might be a good follow up in the future, but someone else would have to do it. Just to out those point sources and see what's contributing to what.
3: Um, yeah, I guess someone could definitely do that. I think there are so many diverse sources that enter our ecosystem that it might be difficult to characterize all of them, but I think it's definitely worth doing, especially with um, the amount of combined sewer overflows and just looking at street litter and things like that. I think that would be an interesting follow-up.
2: Did you do sampling over time? Like how... how short was the window of sampling and how many samples approximately?
3: So we sampled over a three-year time period with different types of sampling methods to test the limit of detection approach with um, quality control to see if it would improve capture and also what microplastic diversity looked like using different methods.
2: So what was the average number of uh, particles or things that you found in a water sample? Again, given a pro-volume basis.
3: Um, I don't know the exact value for all of the samples because they varied quite a lot. But I think our typically in Onondaga Lake values were higher, um, especially for one of the samples we collected post-fall turnover in November 2020, we had a pretty high concentration um, compared to some of our previous sampling. Um, and then we saw that concentrations in 2021 were much lower. And then we also tested Skinialis Lake, um, which is the source of unfiltered drinking water. They have a filtration waiver to use that water for the city of Syracuse. Um, and we did detect some microplastics as well within that lake, though typically lower than in Onondaga Lake.
2: So do you think there's a lag effect based on human activity? And maybe that's why 2021 was lower than 2020, because maybe the uh, the lockdowns? caused the period of X number of months to have lower pollution inputs and then they reflected months later when you did the sampling? Is that possible?
3: Um, It is possible. I don't know that that we can contribute one potential thing over another um, because there were a lot of other factors that we think could have contributed to a lower concentration, um, especially because the um, flushing time of Onondaga Lake is quite fast compared to some other lakes. It's on the order of like three months uh, versus some lakes, like Scania's Lake, it's around like 18 years. Um, So that's another potential factor that I think would make something like the impacts of COVID, for example, you might notice that a lot sooner and it might not last as long in a lake that flushes faster.
2: Uh, What about seasonal variation or different different sampling points in the lakes?
3: Yeah, so we sampled different lake positions as well as... um, different seasons, but we weren't able to get as many samples as we would have liked during more of the uh, wet seasons. And we were kind of limited by when boats were going out um, and when we were able to collect samples because there are certain seasons like summer and spring are typically better for sampling. So we weren't able to really narrow down. If there was kind of like a seasonality to what we were seeing, we did consider stratification and kind of pre and post lake turnover. Um, But we're still looking into that information to kind of see what the potential impacts of lake turnover might be.
0: What about the total
2: biological mass in the water, you know, of all the fish and smaller creatures? I would think in the summer and spring, it would be much higher than winter. And perhaps then there was more consumption of microplastics the you know, the living biota there. Um, Any of those effects that you observed?
3: We weren't able to really consider that. We were primarily doing surface water um, rather than water collected at depth, so we wouldn't have been able to see those impacts as much.
2: I mean, there's certain algae, maybe they would be a proxy to the amount of life, you know, in the rivers and lakes at a certain time, even though it was a surface sample, you know, photosynthetic bacteria or algae. Um, any of those come into the samples? Or again, did you, you can't can't do everything? It was just too much.
3: No, yeah, I mean, we, we couldn't consider all of those things. Um, we primarily just collected the water samples, not any kind of biota that were present in the lakes.
2: When you did your sampling, were there any visual cues, like large macroscopic plastics that were floating in the vicinity that were there or absent at different times you sampled? Like, you know, when the sampling was done, did you guys look around and see literally what you were sampling? You know, where was the water cloudy at certain times? Was it, again, did it have visible macroplastics in it? Um, Were there any, like, again, visible... Large differences when you did a sample in one lake versus another and one location versus another? Was any of that written into the data?
3: Yeah, of course. We considered, you know, what we could visibly see as far as if there was like any floating debris or if there were macroplastics present. We did consider that, especially because we did sampling in the Inner Harbor region, um, which is one area in Onondaga County where they use skimmer boats to collect floatables, which includes macroplastics that float on the water as well as um floating like woody debris and things like that so we did collect some samples there and noted that there were higher concentrations of plastic particles in those areas where floatables collect um versus some other parts of the harbor where we didn't sample there were obviously less floating material so what kind of conclusions did you draw
2: from the data what differences did you see
3: um differences between the lakes or what did we because we looked at a lot of different things our first kind of couple years of sampling was looking at different collection methods because the field of microplastics is very unstandardized when it comes to collection methodologies so there's not one particular way that people collect samples and everyone does it the same way there's a ton of different ways and everyone kind of does it a little bit differently um, so we looked at different methods and we had started with kind of low volume sampling because it's easier and it's faster and we kind of realized that with our particular ecosystem and what we're able to quantify at specific um, volumes we weren't really getting quantifiable amounts of plastic so after that we kind of tried other methods we tried bucket sampling with a sieve we tried net sampling And we kind of found that if you're using lower volume methods at least where we were collecting we weren't really capturing the full diversity of plastics in our ecosystem and that could potentially be misleading for any regional policy that we would try to contribute to based on those results Um, so we found that net sampling worked the best for us um, in collecting the full diversity of plastics Um, but in areas where you're collecting a high quantity and there's a lot of organic material present that could also be very time consuming. So we kind of recommend people implement better quality assurance and quality control protocols to first characterize what kind of background contamination they might have from you know, sampling protocols that they're using and the labs that they're using. And then afterward they can properly determine how many liters do they need to collect in their environment to get a quantifiable amount of plastic and then go from there.
2: How do you know when you're collecting that? Uh, you know, let's say you're collecting in a plastic test tube versus a glass one, you know, you're transferring a sample from one thing to another with a pipette. It's plastic, let's say. How much contamination can occur in a lab setting where you're trying to analyze a sample or, you know, from collecting it to analyzing?
3: it? Um, so it really depends on the lab um, and how small in size that you're going because the smaller in size you're going, the more contamination you're going to have, especially from something like a plastic test tube, where we'd think that if you had any cross-contamination, it would probably be quite small. Whereas the primary contaminant that we had to deal with from our laboratory process and from our field process was microfibers. So that would be fibers from clothing that people are wearing during collection, lab coats people are wearing. And the way that you want to look at that is being able to quantify background contamination from the moment you start taking the sample to the moment that you're finished with the sample and basically having a blank that's present throughout that whole time period and also a blanks that are there during laboratory processing. Um, and so we kind of implemented both and kind of compared them and also implemented improved quality control um, to subtract out any blank contamination that was occurring with our samples.
2: Yeah, because the pH of the sample, I guess, could leach microplastics out of a test tube or whatever other instrument, or they just might be coming out of them as well at a certain rate and contaminating the samples. And like you said, clothing in the lab, etc. Did you see any big signals of contamination sources?
3: Um, So we commonly saw uh, microfibers from our lab coats, But we dyed our lab coats bright pink um, to make sure that we knew what those looked like when we saw them. So we couldn't quantify and we subtracted any fiber that looked similar to our lab coats to make sure that we weren't artificially elevating our concentrations. Um, We also saw a lot of blue microfibers and we're not completely sure where those came from and whether they were all plastic. Some of them looked more like cotton. Um, so it's possible they came just from, you know, the surrounding environment. More people potentially wear blue, but we did see a lot of blue. And just, yeah, anything else we saw within our blanks that um could be mistaken or considered a suspected microplastic, um, we made sure to note that and usually um subtract that out as part of the quality control process.
2: So did you see that just by wearing certain clothing it would have released enough fibers into the air that they would fall into samples is that what you're saying
3: yeah so it's possible that one it's part of just like the air contamination of just being around the samples um even though we cover our samples throughout the whole process it's possible that they're introduced through the air or that they're transferred onto either glassware or our sieve stack while we're processing the samples and that's another way that microfibers are potentially introduced um
2: Have you done any uh, sample handling under a fume hood only, you know, with laminar airflow maybe if if it's available?
3: Yeah, we do the majority of our processing in a class 1000 clean room. So um, that has like an advanced system for dealing with kind of air contamination that we would be um, subjecting samples to. And we haven't like directly compared what that looks like with some of our other hoods. But um, yeah, I guess someone could compare between different types of hoods and see what that looks like, but um, what we were kind of noticing is that there was certain trends of just seeing more microfibers. Um, and so if other labs were noticing that or having that throughout their protocol, um, it would just be important to kind of determine what the either the average is or look at better determinants of quality control like the limit of detection or limit of quantification. Which is something commonly used in analytical chemistry. Um, So we were looking into using that instead of doing um, average subtraction.
2: Well, what about partnering with another lab? That's that you know. So every sample that lab puts out, they send you half, and you test as well. And then you do the same thing: you send them half of a sample, so that you can see amongst two labs um, is there a difference? Maybe that's a good way of subtracting some of the uh, lab-specific contamination.
3: I mean, I don't know. I definitely think like intercomparability of different laboratories is very important um, to kind of see what contamination looks like, what are the differences. But when it comes to if you're specifically trying to do a blank subtraction with your samples, then it should be with the conditions and the laboratory and with which they were processed in, um, not an outside laboratory. Well,
2: then maybe you won't have to control for a lot of factors. You can see, like, oh, these 10 samples of our lab and have- you know, the other lab, you know, the other school did it. And on average, uh, we see, uh, you know, 20% more fibers than they do. So it looks like there's some lab specific signal, then maybe you could tackle that that way. Just another way, I guess, of subtracting.
3: Um, I suppose so. I guess our, our focus was more on um, how do people that are monitoring for microplastics and want to possibly figure out what their specific contamination is um, throughout their process, how do they monitor effectively while also collecting the necessary information on any background contamination to make better quality assurance decisions going forward um, and also producing data that is more harmonized within the field and can be more easily comparable with studies that are, you know, in different geographic regions from them.
2: All right. So um, in your sampling, is there anything that that jumped out at you that was uh, a huge signal or was it all pretty subtle, the results you got?
3: Um, it depends what you mean by a huge signal. Can you elaborate?
2: Well, I mean, was there far more microplastics than you thought, far less A predominance of fibers or a lack of them? Like, what are some of the things that, uh, again, stood out to you in the analysis as either confirming your hypothesis or being unusual? It's something to investigate.
3: Um, so we expected that the southern portion of our lake, which um, is primarily where a lot of uh, the pathways for microplastic contamination into the lake would be coming in. So that's where our wastewater treatment plant is located on Onondaga Lake, as well as um, where two of the major tributaries, Onondaga Creek and Nine Mile Creek, come into the lake. So we expected the southern portion would be higher, but it wasn't always higher. Um, and that we thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and we're still looking into why that could be. Um, but we did find that typically Onondaga Lake, which... We thought would have higher concentrations. It's very urban, Um, an urban lake versus Skinny Atlas Lake is um, more agricultural land use, mixed land use with residential um, areas to the north and some more increased recreation to the north of the lake um, was typically lower in concentration than Onondaga, which was what we expected. Um, We did think we'd have predominantly microfibers, uh, but fragments were more common and. I think that's potentially because of increased like inputs of street litter that could contribute microplastic fragments versus fibers but also it was difficult with the contamination that we had on microfibers to always quantify them effectively but yeah i'm hoping to transition into the field of sustainable materials management just because i think seeing kind of the end process of microplastics and them in the environment, I kind of want to be on the front end of helping to stop the flow of microplastics from entering the environment. So how do we handle materials? How do we handle waste? Um, Are there more effective ways to manage our waste and basically reduce our waste before it becomes an environmental problem or ends up in the environment? Um, So I'm hoping to transition to that after I defend.
2: Okay. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is, there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.